0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. My mental health really began to suffer during COVID. At first, life seemed normal. I work from home anyway. But as the months passed, with no vacation, no friends to see, no change in routine – It was a bit like the walls were closing in. And one of the things that got me through that period was therapy. Talking to someone who could help change the patterns that led to distress was incredibly helpful. If there's something you need to get off your chest, then why not give BetterHelp a try? You can just fill out a brief questionnaire online and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. You can arrange things to suit your schedule, and if you don't click with the person you're talking to, it's easy to switch to someone else. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com byzantium today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash byzantium. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 199, The Battle of Dyrachium. In our last episode, we watched Alexius Komnenos seize the Byzantine throne with a little help from his extended family. We know that this was a good thing, that the Ducas Komnenos connection would provide stability and ensure that Byzantium survived this most troubling of times. But to fully appreciate how desperate the Roman position was, we have to put our hindsight to one side. Looked at another way, Alexius was just usurper number five since the disaster at Manzikert, and he was a particularly green Vasilevs, still in his mid-twenties with no particular base of support in the provinces he was now in charge of. Those civil wars had begun when it became clear that the empire could no longer even land armies in Anatolia, let alone stand toe-to-toe with the Turkic tribes. That display of weakness had prompted the Pechenegs and the towns along the Danube to throw off imperial control, and some of the Serbian princes of Dukia also repudiated their nominal submission to Constantinople. Now... Robert Giscard stood poised to launch an invasion of the Balkan provinces. The Normans had swatted aside Byzantine resistance in Italy, and what stood facing them on the other side of the Adriatic wasn't particularly intimidating. Constantinople's European armies had been badly depleted by the recent civil wars. And remember, this wasn't a scenario where just loyal Romans stood ready to defend their homeland— the Balkan armies were staffed by many men who did not identify with Byzantium. Each region had its own blend of Bulgarians or other Slavic speakers, mixed with Vlachs and small groups of Pechenegs and Magyars, and many other groups who the sources struggled to identify. As we saw with Basil II's wars, the key was control of various mountain fortresses. Once their doors were shut against you, it was hard to maintain sieges in the craggy landscape. If Giscard were to score enough victories over the Romans, the whole region might go over to his banner. The emperor would then be left in command of little more than Constantinople and the islands of the Aegean. From that position, no imperial recovery would be possible, and the prospect of a Norman takeover of the empire would seem entirely plausible. To a neutral observer surveying the eastern Mediterranean in 1081, it might well have seemed that the Roman Empire was at its end. With the stakes so high, the first thing the new ruling clan did upon taking power was to dispatch a series of begging letters to its western allies. Missives were dashed off to the Venetians, to King Henry IV of Germany, the Pope Gregory VII, and a string of Italian lords who had until recently been Byzantine clients. To the Italians the message was clear. If you rebel against Giscard's rule, then money will be coming your way. To the king and Pope, a more nuanced approach had to be taken. The famous incident at Canossa had taken place just three years earlier, where Henry had apparently knelt in the snow for days in order to remove the excommunication which the pontiff had placed on him. If you don't know that story, then it's safe just to say that tensions between the papacy and the kings of Germany were at an all-time high. The Normans had thus assumed a vital role in the balance of power. Henry was tempted to march on Rome and, reorder the religious establishment to his liking, and Norman power in the south was one of the reasons he didn't. Pope Gregory therefore had to hug Giscard ever closer to him despite constant friction with the untamable men from Normandy. The Pope had even signed off on the Norman invasion of Byzantium, which we'll come back to in a moment. So Alexius wrote to Gregory to try and dissuade him from supporting the Norman cause, while writing to Henry, encouraging him to come south and put an end to things, including perhaps Gregory. A huge amount of treasure was promised to the Germans, and plenty of gifts and honours were sent ahead in advance. Only the Venetians could be relied upon to share the Byzantine horror of Giscard's ambitions. The priority for the merchants of Venice was to maintain unobstructed access to the ports of the Adriatic. They had enjoyed centuries of absent Byzantine rule, and the idea of an acquisitive Norman empire stretching across their sea was abhorrent. Alexius asked for their help, and despite being quite willing to give it, the Venetians drove a hard bargain, which we'll talk about when the war is over. So what about the Normans themselves? What was Giscard after, beyond the vainglory of conquest? Robert's stated reason for his campaign was to restore Michael VII, Michael Ducas, to the throne. Remember that it was Michael, in the post Manzikert haze, who had promised to marry his son to Giscard's daughter. Once Votagnatis had seized the palace, though, the deal was off. Both Michael and Robert's daughter were sent away to religious houses. So for Giscard, there was an element of revenge, or at least angling to get his deal or some version of it restored. Remember that with the betrothal of his daughter also came a high court salary. Robert probably also wanted to put an end to Byzantine interference in Italy. As we just saw, Constantinople maintained contact with various Italian lords, particularly those in their former stronghold in Apulia, whose traders and fishermen were in regular contact with the Roman base at Dyrrhachium. And then there's the question of land. The Normans had brought with them the feudal politics of Western Europe, which we discussed a little when talking about Charlemagne. When Robert conquered Byzantine land in Italy, he divided it up and gifted it to his people, either to reward those who'd fought with him, or to woo the locals who he would now try to make into his loyal subjects. The real Normans, from Normandy, were never very numerous, a few hundred here, maybe a thousand there, so they would always need to co-opt the local Lombards, Italians, and Byzantines if they were going to maintain control, over southern Italy. Their conquest of Sicily had opened up fresh lands and lordships to dole out, but eventually Giscard would need new territory to tempt his supporters with, and the Byzantine Balkan coast was the obvious spot to start expanding. There may have been one supporter in particular he was looking to find a new realm for. Ever-present on this expedition to Byzantium was his eldest son, Bohemond. Giscard had repudiated his marriage to Bohemond's mother in order to make a more advantageous match. Bohemond was therefore technically a bastard, but continued to serve loyally under his father's command. Robert's new son, Roger, looked likely to inherit his South Italian kingdom, leaving Bohemond out in the cold. Giscard may have had his eye on leaving this new acquisition to his eldest boy. <music> the Normans set sail in May 1081, about a month after Alexius had been crowned emperor. Since the Vasilefs would be occupied with establishing his rule, he sent ahead his troubleshooter-in-chief, George Palaeolochos, to take charge of Dyrrhachium. Dyrrhachium was, of course, the key Byzantine city on the Adriatic coast. It lies in modern Albania, and was the start of the Via Ignatia, the road which led all the way to Constantinople. I have put up an updated map at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. Sailing with Giscard was a Byzantine monk who'd appeared at his court a few months before claiming to be the deposed emperor Michael Ducas. Needless to say, it wasn't him, but the impostor had been key in securing full papal blessing for an assault on a fellow Christian kingdom. The logic being that they were merely restoring the rightful ruler to Constantinople, not slaughtering thousands in a war of conquest. The pontiff, by the way, had not only given the campaign his blessing, but promised those who died fighting... Absolution from their sins. The Crusades are coming, and we will be talking about this again. The Normans lost some ships in a storm as they made their crossing, but the majority of the army landed unscathed. They quickly captured the port of Orlon and the island of Corfu, and made their way northwards on land towards Dyrrhachium. They arrived in late June and set up a siege of the city. Durachium was a highly defensible site. It was situated on a narrow peninsula which ran parallel to the coast, with a swampy lagoon separating it from the mainland. This created various obstacles for the Normans to overcome, and though they blockaded the city by land, they couldn't really get their siege engines into good positions. Various attempts to get mobile towers up against the walls were repelled by George Palaiologos. By late July, the Venetian fleet arrived in the area. We have different versions of events given by Anna and a Norman chronicler, but they both end the same way. The Venetians routed the Normans, cutting communications between the besieging army and their bases in Italy. Things seemed to be deteriorating quickly for Giscard. Separated from their supplies, his troops began to suffer, and eventually sickness spread through their stagnant camp as the siege dragged on. Giscard, though, was a seasoned campaigner. He moved their camp to better ground and continued to intimidate the surrounding towns, who coughed up supplies and manpower when required. Back in Constantinople, Alexius had been completing one last round of diplomacy before setting off west. We will talk more about this in detail in future episodes, but the emperor was forced to formally acknowledge the new sultan who had set up shop at Nicaea so that the two sides could make peace. Komnenos then ordered the few remaining garrisons of western Anatolia to pack up their things and come home. To fight Giscard he would need every last man he could call upon. The east was on its own for the time being. It was the middle of August when Alexius finally departed the capital and began to muster his army. And it was a motley force which coalesced around Thessalonica a month later. At its core were the Varangian Guard and what was left of the western Tachmata. We get the impression that a number of experienced soldiers were absent because they had participated in the civil wars against Alexius and could no longer be trusted. There were small numbers of Norman and Turkish mercenaries, and a lot of inexperienced foot soldiers who were being called up en route. Alexius also asked for troops to be sent from the Paulicians. As you may recall, the Paulicians were a heretical Christian sect who Basil I had defeated in eastern Anatolia. The survivors had been settled in the Balkans near Philippopolis, and had maintained their community identity over the past century. Similarly, men were called up from tribes of Magyars and Pechenegs who'd been defeated and settled in Bulgaria over the past century. This was all standard practice, but usually the professional Roman element in the army was much stronger and was able to hold together this kind of multi-ethnic coalition. After the disasters of the past 30 years, that was becoming a harder balance to maintain. The Byzantine force arrived outside Dyrrhachium on the 15th of October. Alexius ordered George Palaiologos to exit the city and come to his tent to advise him. According to Anna, George didn't want to leave the city, believing he could do more good inside, but came anyway, and then advised Alexius not to attack the Normans, but was ignored. George's argument was that the Normans couldn't maintain the siege indefinitely particularly with their limited access to the sea. It was better to simply harass their foraging parties until they were forced to give up. This strategy, though, would require a patient imperial response, and it was difficult for Alexius to be patient. Just on a practical note, these coalition armies are hard to control, and once you keep them sitting in a camp for a few weeks, they become restless and the chance of disease spreading increases. But, more pertinently, Alexius was under intense political pressure to succeed. He was new on the throne and had come to power by looting the capital. He had to swiftly demonstrate that he had God's favour and could get things done. The Norman presence on Roman soil was a serious challenge to imperial authority. The elites of the Balkans had repeatedly thrown in their lot with native rebels who could organise a challenge to Constantinople. Giscard might be an outsider, but he had something no other challenger had ever had, access to reinforcements. Not just of men, but goods and gold from Italy could be brought over to reward those who supported him. Already the elites of the Dyrrhachium area had gone over to his side. They had little choice in the matter, but still. Alexius now felt... He had no choice but to give battle and crush this threat before it became serious. Komnenos had hoped to trap the Normans between the boggy marshes and the city walls, but Giscard moved quickly to break the siege and get his men out into the surrounding fields where they would have room to manoeuvre. The two sides came face to face on the 18th of October, lining up in the standard formation of centre, with left and right wings. The size of the armies involved remains a matter of debate, and it's kind of an important one for Byzantine history. Anna says her father was outnumbered, our Norman source says that Robert was, so no help there. Historian John Halden estimates numbers in the twenty to 30,000 range. Count me amongst those who think it was probably not quite so many in part because of recent Byzantine losses and in part because of how many ships would have been needed to transport 20,000 men across the sea. Still, it was serious numbers for each side. Robert's campaigns in Italy had been fought with far smaller armies, while the Romans hadn't amassed a force this size since Manzikert. Giscard and Alexius commanded the centres, and it was from here that each planned to win the battle. Komninos was well aware of the reputation of the Norman heavy cavalry and their devastating charges, so he placed the Varangian guard in the front line. He hoped that they would stand firm in the face of the enemy advance, allowing the archers and slingers he'd stationed behind them to do damage from distance. But unknowingly, Alexius was reenacting parts of the 1066 Battle of Hastings where Anglo-Saxon heavy infantry had been routed by Norman cavalry. Much of the Varangian guard was now made up of Anglo-Saxon mercenaries, and sadly the same scenario was about to play out. The Norman cavalry began the battle trying to lure the Varangians out of their positions, but were repelled. Then the Norman right wing moved forward, trying to outflank the Varangians and hit them from the side. The Varangians stood firm, though, and the Roman left soon closed the gap and pushed the Norman right back. Like Alexius, Robert had had to conscript many Italians and local Balkan peasants to fill out his army. Put under pressure by the Roman cavalry, they broke and fled for the sea. Unfortunately, the Varangians, having just been under assault, burst forward to chase after the fleeing soldiers but this drew them away from the rest of the centre and quickly tired them out as they tried to give chase from behind chainmail and other heavy armour. Sensing the opportunity, Giscard directed his heavy cavalry towards the Imperial Guardsmen. The horsemen manoeuvred into the gap that had opened up and slammed into the Varangian flank. Heavy casualties were inflicted, and eventually the infantrymen broke and fled the field. Several hundred found sanctuary in a nearby church where Anna claims the Normans locked them in and burnt down the building. With his front rank gone and his left wing busy chasing Normans into the surf, Alexius was now thoroughly exposed. Giscard unleashed his heavy cavalry who smashed through the Byzantine line. The centre began to break apart and rout, and then... The right wing joined them. All was chaos and death as the Normans pursued their fleeing enemy. Anna describes a series of heroic deeds which her father undertook as he made his escape, but she doesn't hide the fact that this was a shattering defeat. She says that amongst the dead were the son of the former emperor Constantine Ducas, Votaniates' nephew. And George Palaiologos's father. Guesswork from scholars concludes that about a quarter of Alexius's army was killed. Depending on how many people you think were fighting at Dyrrhachium, that is somewhere between three and five thousand men. The remnants of the Roman force made for Thessalonica, though many individual units within the army will have just headed home. This included the Paulicians, who we'll be hearing from again. There was no chance of any further campaigning that year, so Alexius returned to Constantinople, his empire and his emperorship teetering. The victorious Giscard, meanwhile, set about consolidating his victory. He sent out troops to try and persuade nearby fortresses to open their gates to him, which some did, and he reinforced his siege of Duracium. The Venetian fleet would not stay there for the winter, and in their absence his agents went to work on the garrison inside. According to Anna, the Venetian officer who'd taken over in Palaiolokos' absence betrayed the city to the Normans in February in exchange for a place in Robert's expanding court. Giscard had captured the first city on the road to Constantinople and must have been confident of his prospects. Many scholars like to point out that purely in terms of men killed, Duraikium was a far worse defeat than Manzikert. Most of Romanus' army fled the field alive, while Alexius lost many of his most valuable troops, including almost all of the Varangians, and seemingly most of the western Tachmata. As you know, the Tachmata were the elite native Byzantine cavalry detachments. They were professional soldiers serving year-round. I generally just refer to them as the Tachmata for simplicity, but individual detachments do have names in the sources, often based on old palace guard regiments, the Scoli, the Excubators, and the Hikanti. Historian Warren Treadgold points out that these named units are never mentioned again in the sources. He concludes that, The civil wars, followed by the Battle of Dyrrhachium, killed so many of their number that there was no point in reconstituting them. When Alexius returns to the field, the elite units which Anna and others describe are all foreign mercenaries. This doesn't mean that there were no Romans fighting anymore. Professional soldiers still existed, but now they were likely to be found in the personal retinues of leading aristocrats including the emperor. And of course, many ordinary Romans would still sign up to serve as infantry, or indeed be forced to do so. But when the sources describe the striking units, the elite cavalry who so often decide the fate of battles, it is all Turks and Normans and other Western knights. Alexius will be lurching from crisis to crisis for the foreseeable future, He needed experienced fighting men now, and so naturally he turned to those who were readily available. The alternative would have been to recruit huge numbers of native Romans in the hopes that they would somehow succeed and grow into veterans. We will, of course, keep an eye on developments within the Roman army and discuss them in detail at a future date. But Warren Treadgold claims that this was the moment when the link was severed between the legions who'd gathered on the campus Martius and the men who'd served the emperors in Constantinople. He argues that the native armies gathered in Byzantium were the descendants of that Roman tradition, and at Dyrrhachium that line of succession ended. It's debatable, of course, whether you make that direct connection but he is correct in seeing this as the last time the army would muster in roughly the same form that we've been describing since Belisarius's day and before. It's probably worth reminding you that the elite cavalry of the empire had not been uh, obliterated Many had been killed by the Turks and the civil wars, but many others had just retired and not been replaced because of the economic crisis the empire was in. And of course, thousands and thousands of soldiers were still alive and serving in Cilicia and Antioch under former imperial officers. But without the organization and funding from Constantinople, their retirement will bring an end to their lineage too. Perhaps it's also worth discussing the tactics used by the Normans. Though they are not exactly the same, the heavy cavalry charges of Giscard's men were similar to the cataphracts employed by Nicephorus Phocas a century earlier. As you may recall, Phocas spent years honing his tactics to deliver devastating victories against the armies of Tarsus and Aleppo. Now the Romans were on the receiving end of those same manoeuvres. The key to withstanding a cavalry charge is to have men with pikes or spears who are willing to stand firm in the face of the hugely intimidating approach of armoured horsemen. Horses will rarely jump into a stationary obstacle. The aim of such a charge is to intimidate and to gallop through the gaps that open up as men panic and run. If gaps have already opened up, as at Dyrrhachium, then infantry have little chance against the tanks coming towards them. These tactics were something an army had to practice. They didn't come naturally. As the Romans moved into different theatres of war, they lost the art of dealing with heavy cavalry. Alexius tried to put his toughest troops in position to resist, but for various reasons he couldn't offer them the support they needed to hold steady. This is why the Bulgarians, faced with Basil II, exclusively used guerrilla tactics. They never even tried to face the Romans on the field of battle. With hindsight, we can see that Alexius should have done the same. But he was faced with pressure from centuries of tradition. That the Romans take the field and fight barbarians. That emperors must be seen to stand tall and not cower away. He gave in to that pressure and paid a very high price. The fact that the Normans were viewed as barbarians is another problem in this scenario. They were a highly organised army, easily the equal of the imperial force. An opponent like that hadn't been seen in the Balkans for two centuries. Yes, the Pechenegs had done considerable damage recently, but they were not an organised state who could capture walled cities and offer incentives to local elites. Giscard could do all those things. At Manzikert and Dyrrhachium, the Romans were guilty of thinking that their opponents were best met with a traditional response. In both cases, the imperial army lacked cohesion and experience and was badly beaten the Romans needed to learn quickly that there was no shame in returning to the guerrilla tactics that had served them well during the centuries of Arab raids. Though it would take some time, Alexius would eventually learn that lesson. Maintaining power long enough to fully absorb this lost wisdom was now key to Roman survival. Next time on The Narrative the war continues. We've nearly reached rock bottom, and by the end of this war, the Romans will finally start to pull themselves together yet again. But next time will be our 200th episode. Yes, I said I'd beat Mike Duncan for quantity, if not quality, and I am a man of my word. We're going to do something a little different, but we'll be very much sticking with the theme of Byzantine collapse in this era see you then